super to me although I guess it's not actually pink when you look at it but um I guess you could put on some pink glasses and uh and then it would be um anyway I hope spring is blooming around you and bringing you some joy oh there's there's a new little baby tree down the street for me that I'm excited about uh uh, there was a big tree there, and I used to walk down the street and hug this tree overlooking Lake Michigan and sing a little song to it in Greek about the moon, and uh, I just I loved that tree, and this was part of my daily ritual walk, and um, and then one uh, one day last fall. There was a storm, and I guess uh, it hit it hit the tree, and the tree was also uh, rotten in the middle. Uh, didn't know this. Um, the lightning split it open, I guess, and and they had to they had to take it down. And uh, you know there was just one one day uh, going for a walk, and the tree wasn't there. I was very sad, but um, there was still the stump, so I'd walk down every day and hug the stump and sing to the stump and that was there all winter and then uh, one day last month the the stump was gone um just totally gone and you know they just have uh hay and wood chips and mulch on top so I would just walk in a circle around the the hay and straw and uh and sing a little song and uh and then uh, finally, just uh, last week, I think, um, there's a new baby tree there. And so now I walk down and it's kind of too little for a real hug. So uh, I just I just caress its branches and uh, sing a little Greek nursery rhyme to it and tickle it. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's going to grow up to be a big, strong tree that I can hug again. Um, Anyway, I don't know, I'm just thinking about cycles and time and the moon waxing and waning and waxing and waning and here we are again. Um, and just cycles, cycling, cycling around. Um, big tree, stump, no tree, little tree. And uh, anyway, I hope, I hope you all have uh, a tree out there to, to love and, and hug and... Uh, I know there's a lot of sorrow and and fear and anger and despair and injustice and it's uh you know it's tough out there um so I hope I hope you have a tree near you and I hope you look up at the moon tonight and I know I'm looking at it too and you're not alone and uh I hope hope you can uh 
rest your, your head and heart for just a little bit here in the violet hour and uh, find a little little bit of solace. Um, so, well, why don't, why don't we just get into it? I'm going to be reading you selections from The Best of Brevity, 20 Groundbreaking Years of Flash Nonfiction, edited by Zoe Bossier and Dinty W. Moore. Um, this is a fantastic collection put out by Rose Metal Press of the beautiful work uh, from the online journal Brevity over the years. I've also got a recipe and essay for you from Chris Galvin and music by the wonderful Leaf Rapids. So let's dive right in. Bear Fragments by Christine Bile. 1. In the High Sierra, her first time sleeping in a tent, my friend Pilar from Barcelona is terrified. She is afraid of bears. She wipes toothpaste from the corners of her mouth, tucks her hair into her sleeping bag, and cinches the hood against cool alpine air. She stares at the nylon ceiling. She lies still as a log, attuned to any noise outside. All night she hears it. Rustle, rustle. A bear in the bushes, edging closer to her. Closer. She freezes, holds her breath. The noise stops. She relaxes. The noise begins, rhythmic. Rustle, rustle. At 5 a.m., exhausted, her eyes drift shut and quiet. The sound is her eyelashes against the silky polyester of her sleeping bag. Open, shut, open, shut. She blinks, stops the rustle, starts it again, stops, starts. The bear is in her bag. She sleeps. Two. A Lingot story tells of a woman who married a bear. From territory to region, village to clan to family, the story moves. Once I heard this. If you are a woman and a bear comes close, lift your shirt and show him your breasts. He will see you are a woman and remember your kinship. He won't hurt you. I have never had to try. 3. Northern Rockies grizzlies mate in early summer, lumbering towards lowlands in May, meeting up in meadows of glacier lilies just pushed up through snow. For weeks, they do little more than loll and hump and goose each other, frisky or dutiful as aging lovers. The boar gives sperm in great jets. But a sow does not become pregnant then. Her body protects a fertilized egg, unimplanted, for months while she feeds, grows fat and slow, on grub, moth, root, fish, beetle, seed. A bear cannot be pregnant before she is full. By late September, when food is leaving and the bear tires of gorging, the egg burrows into her uterine wall. The bear dens up. The cubs circle and twist inside of her. She breathes once, twice, every few hours. Her heart nearly stopped. Midwinter, cubs are born. For months in the den, they suck the sow's milk, grub, moth, root, fish, beetle, seed, while she lies on her side dreaming of glacier-lilied fields. 4. 
Bear a grudge, bear fruit, bear your burdens, bear down, bear out, bear arms, bear the cost, bear scrutiny, bear left at the corner, bear my grief, bear a child, bear up under pressure, bear in mind, bear witness, bear north. 5. In Glacier National Park, I knew a photographer. One morning in an alpine meadow, Lester saw a bear across the hill, a dot on the horizon. It looked pretty far away. I had to squint to see it, he said. Lester photographed the bear as it came closer and closer, steady and steady. He yelled, but it came up to him and stood and looked at him, and Lester fell down and played dead like you are supposed to if a bear gets that close. The bear sniffed him and turned him over, ripped his skin open and long tears on his back, and licked him and sat on his leg, blew out his knee, and shit on his middle, a wet pile. The bear moved on. Lester can still hike, the wrecked knee fixed with metal plates. He still takes pictures in the mountains, awake to territory and perimeter. I don't blame that bear for a thing it did, he said. 6. While his sister wasn't watching, a young boy wandered off. His village was in a mountainous area in Pakistan, and the family worried. The boy was only two. A search party looked for days without a sign. They were about to give up when one man found footprints outside a cave. Inside, the searchers saw the boy nestled with a bear, curled close to her side, both asleep. The men entering the cave woke the bear, and they shot her and returned the boy to his family. At a hospital, he was examined. The boy had no scratches on him, not a single mark. In the boy's belly? The milk of a bear. 7. The scent of a bear is a thick, greased wind. Close, you can smell it right away. It precedes any other trace in the air. Blueberry or saw exhaust, spruce needle or wood smoke. Old and sharp. It brings to mind adrenaline and rot in sex and everything I've ever known that's wild. Crawl in bed be 
tears drowned a patchwork quilt. You were shaking like a leaf. You were shaking like a That was Leaf Rapids with Dear Sister. Fluency by Jamila Osman. What would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. Muriel Ruckeiser. We learned English faster than our parents, their tongues too old to take a new shape. Our tongues still coated in milk. This meant we didn't pray like they did and God didn't answer when we called. English teachers tisked, tisked, tisked when our words lost letters, when ending became endin became the end. English was a world we rebuilt with our small hands. I was a girl, small and dark-skinned. Nothing belonged to me except what came out of this mouth of mine. When my cousin put his blank in my blank, or when my uncle blanked me in the living room of my own home and the strange man grabbed my blank last summer on the train, I wanted to say stop, but didn't know what language to say it in. In Somalia, we speak Somali. In America, we speak English. Or sometimes we speak nothing at all. All the women I know speak in whispers. When I try and tell some stories, language turns to iron, heavy and rusting in the back of my throat. I bite my tongue and taste blood. Silence was my first language. I am fluent in its cadences. I know the way quiet can pour out of a mouth like a rush of water in a season of drought. Oh, the pain you'll bring to me. She sent me out a searching for a caravan switch For I deserved a beating, or so my mother said The thin ones leave you bleeding, and the thick ones hurt like hell Which is where I'm going anyway, or so my mother tells where she's going anyway, so her mother tells. 
Leaf Rapids with Caragana Switch. Holy by Laurie Jaquila. My mother worries about my soul. She tells me so at her kitchen table, 6 a.m. We're making nut roll even though it's not a holiday, nothing to celebrate. My mother believes bread rises only in the morning. I'm not good with mornings. Last night, I stayed up late, reading, worrying, Ruining your eyes, my mother says. Drinking. I'm hungover. My mother is dying. Everything is urgent now. My mother wants me to know things, like where she keeps the silver, how to shut off the water, how to make a decent nut roll. Who will teach you when I'm dead, she says, and pounds the dough so hard it makes death seem impossible. This morning she wants to talk religion, something I've refused to do for years. She brushes flour off her velour pantsuit. She punches the dough like it's a face. Mine. She says, you can't believe in nothing. She says, if you don't believe in anything, what is there? She says, you idiot. I clutch the coffee she's made. Instant, too much cream and sugar. The way my father liked it, not me. 
He's dead five years. I sit in his chair. The mug I'm holding was his, Batman. The image faded from my father's hands. My mother's mug, full of lemon tea, is Robin, faded to a mask and cape and the word, holy, exclamation mark. My mother would kiss my father's bald head. She'd say, the dynamic duo. First one goes, then the other, the funeral director said. My dying mother wants to talk about God and faith over a pastry I'll never master, no matter how important it is for her to hand this down. A good daughter would say the words. A good daughter would ease things. It's private, I say about my beliefs. My mother says, I changed your diapers and you talk about private? She works the rolling pin like a threat. It was my grandmother's, then my mother's. Now it will come to me. The wood is worn to a honeyed shine. Maple, like the trees my mother and I planted in the yard when I was a child. My mother rolls the dough in a circle thin enough to see through. A lens to another dimension where she's still young. A cool cigarette between her pink-tipped fingers. Smoke rings rising from her lips. Messages to decode. The skin on my mother's hands is thin enough to see through. A lens to bone. I can't, I say, about rolling dough that thin. Patience, jackass, patience, my mother says. I'm trying. You'll go to hell, she says, you know that. On the table rests a blue prayer book, a tiny paperback my father carried in his pocket when he was sick. Daily devotions. A Jesus fish in a circle on the cover. The fish is drawn in one line. No beginning, no end. My mother doles out ground nuts and sugar, cinnamon and warm milk, four spoonfuls to make the sign of the cross. I spread the mixture evenly, as thin as the dough, thinner out to the edges because it's expensive and has to last. Once at a wedding, my mother brought nut roll for the cookie table. Someone else brought nut roll too, but it wasn't pretty, the layers and dough too thick. What asshole brings a nut roll like that, my mother said then put her perfect nut rolls on a tray. She carried them table to table to be sure people knew which ones were hers. All my life, I've loved my mother. All my life, I've disappointed her. I'm not the daughter I want to be. I'm not the daughter my mother wants. You have to believe or you'll burn, my mother is saying. The nut roll spreads between us, a black hole, a universe pocked with stars. Once I got stoned with a scientist who tried to explain Einstein's theory of time and space. He held up a Taco Bell burrito he'd split in two. He showed me the layers. He said time was like that. A tortilla folded in on itself. Now and not now. Forever. Amen. Time is not a clock, and we are not second hands, he said, and swallowed the burrito down. It's all a horrible daymare, Robin said to Batman. It's been 13 years since my mother died. She said, you have to try to believe. She said, do it for me. She said, where will you be when I'm gone? She packs my lunches in liquor store bags, spends my UNICEF money.
that was Leaf Rapids with Virginia. How to Erase an Arab by Julie Hakim Azam. Israeli general says mission is to smash PLO in Beirut. Seventh grade, social studies. On the family tree, next to the names of my father's family, I write locations of birth. Lebanon, Palestine, Syria. I trace flags from my atlas. There is no Palestinian flag in the book, but I know how to draw it. When the teacher walks around the classroom commenting, all she says about mine is, Palestine isn't a country. Palestine is a place where memories and stories are born. Do I remember Gaza or my grandmother's stories about Gaza? Palestine is a phantom limb that continues to send pain signals through the nerves. District starving in Beirut battle gets food aid. Early effort thwarted. Seventh grade, the kitchen. Jody's brown eyes are wide open. Her mouth opens, then abruptly shuts. My grandmother pauses from dicing onions and hands her a glass of water. When grandmother hands me a glass, I turn it and drink from the side her fingers haven't touched. I hold the water in my mouth. Despite drinking from the other side, I can still taste the onion. After I close the door to my room, Jody lets escape the thing she's been holding inside. Who is that brown woman in your kitchen? My grandparents, refugees, recently arrived at the airport after a bomb destroyed their Beirut apartment. My grandfather is so thin his skin hangs from his body. I wonder if it will slide to the floor. After establishing herself in the kitchen, grandmother begins prolific production, a compensatory cooking, my mother says. Out of the kitchen comes freshly baked pita bread, huge trays of kofta, overflowing bowls of salad. My mouth waters, but I tell her I want McDonald's. Give me hamburger helper, macaroni and cheese, hot dogs. I push her food aside. Palestinians exit Lebanon in droves. Eighth grade, the television. My family moves the following year, and when the teacher assigns the same family ancestry project, I ask my father if I can change our ancestry. The idea comes to me while watching Brian Boitano and Brian Orser battle for the gold in the Winter Olympics in Calgary. The only way I can discern one Brian from the other is by their differently colored outfits. Yet I want to be part of the Brians. I want to be so confident I kick down the door of every room to cry proud tears of victory under a flag whose validity is neither question nor a metonym for violence. I am willing to offend, to jettison Palestine. My parents exchange a glance. All right. Instead of drawing the green cedar tree that adorns the Lebanese flag or the flag of a stateless people, I get out my red marker and begin to draw a maple leaf. Car bomb on West Beirut Street leaves 25 dead and 180 injured. Tenth grade, the foyer. Nicole steps into the foyer to pick me up and is met by my father, who asks her if she knows what is going on in Lebanon. She squints, trying not to appear stoned. My father points a finger and yells about typical Americans and ignorance and privilege and nobody here notices. The day before, my uncle and his friends stood walking on a West Beirut street. A car bomb detonated and killed them all. According to the Times, most of the dead were unidentified. When we get into her large, rust-colored impala, Nicole snorts, The fuck was that? No clue, I mumble. 
but I know that history is a house I must live in. As the ignition cranks, I imagine it. Maybe the men were talking about a mall or infighting among the Palestinians. Perhaps over cigarettes they commiserated over the mundane. Wives, kids gone stir-crazy, food shortages. They didn't notice the unassuming Peugeot or Fiat. Nobody ever does. Wrecked by years of civil war, Beirut is rising from the ashes. University, near Lake Placid. From bare ground, my father erects a house near the site of the 1980 Winter Olympics. He selects wood, casement, granite, and marble. My Muslim father attends Catholic Mass and makes friendly introductions with neighbors. If they ask, he tells them he is Greek or Italian. It's bad to lie your way through life. But this is easier, better. What's worse is how it keeps happening. We build it, our lives, a city, a home. We break it down, over and over. Note, all headlines are from the New York Times between 1982 and 1995. You've got to go, I'm coming with you We'll cross the new divide You are my mystery, future and history I'm always on your side I'm always on your side Feel my true love's faking 
that was Leaf Rapids with Citizen Alien. If You Find a Mouse on a Glue Trap by Suzanne Farrell Smith. If you find a mouse on a glue trap, he'll eyeball you with one black shiny eye while breathing in and out faster than you have ever seen anything breathe. You will panic, though you know the mouse is panicking harder. When your husband points out that the mouse is not alone in the furnace room, you will notice a second glue trap, stuck with the coiled carcass of a garter snake. When the mouse starts to struggle, you will tell your husband to kill it, no, save it, and you will run to your phone and search how to remove a mouse from a glue trap. Articles will tell you to use oil, so while your husband brings the glued mouse out to the back walkway so that your three young sons, in jammies and waiting with popcorn bowls for a Saturday night Christmas movie, don't see it, you will hunt for the carafe. Outside, the mouse will sniff and stretch from the trap. Wearing snow boots over your own jammies, you will, for a moment, think he can free himself. But he won't. You will cover his body with an old trifold cloth diaper and douse his legs with olive oil. Your husband will say he's going to smell too good to predators. And you will tell the mouse, in all honesty, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you smell delicious. You will dig under his legs with a plastic paint scraper. When his front feet clear the glue and hit the cold slate, the mouse will yank his back legs so hard you'll think he's pulling them clear off. The rear left foot will pop free. When the mouse stops reaching for a moment to rest, you and your husband will peer at his rear right leg, which is now bent like a wishbone. You will dig under it with gusto. The leg will stretch again, like nylon. You will sob and apologize to the mouse because you knew the glue trap was left in the furnace room by your home's previous owner, but by the time you remembered to remove it, it will have served its purpose, her purpose. You will tell your husband, the mouse, and yourself that you are the kind of person who rescues stink bugs, who found a hopping frog in the kitchen and talked it into a cup, who feeds the chipmunks and squirrels and made friends with the garter snake before finding it perished. Resolved, you will say to your husband, we have to kill the mouse, it's only humane, and he will say, I'm not a person who kills things. And yet here you are, two people who don't believe in glue traps and who don't kill things, kneeling on their new walkway and killing something, killing it slowly. You will free the mouse's back right leg. He will try to scurry on the mangled stick, land in a hump of snow, and spin round and round, toiling to get somewhere but too broken to go. You will collect yourself. The mouse will stop circling and lie still. You will dig a hole around him and say, The furnace room is so warm, isn't it? That's why you found your way in here. You will hope for hypothermia. Your husband will throw out the paint scraper, the diaper, and the entire bottle of olive oil. You will retrieve from the kitchen pretzels, granola, chia seeds, and a piece of cheese and sprinkle a snack circle around the mouse. You will say goodbye then tell him to surrender. You will return to your family and watch a holiday movie as the boys munch on popcorn and ask for more. When they are in bed, you will not take any more chances and will search the furnace room, garage, and crawl space for more glue traps. In the morning, you will find the mouse's frozen body, graying and covered in frost, still in the snow grave, all the snacks gone except for the seeds. Thank you. 
dear sacred It seems a hundred years Since your letter found me here How the flourish in your pen Sends me right around the bend Please tell me my miserable reply Left this quarantine alive And made its way across the sea stayed and you speak this is no place to be 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 That was Leaf Rapids with Husevik. Chronology of the Body by Sam Kiss. Five years. My hair is never brushed, and I always forget to sit with my legs crossed, ladylike, and for the longest time, my only friend is Matthew Bickle. On the first day of school, he wears a red t-shirt, which sparks a heated debate amongst my classmates. Matthew's wearing a girl color, someone says, pointing. Am not, he says. It's red, not pink. Some boys in my class nod in agreement. It's the color of hearts, another boy says. My classmates look to one another, considering. A stranger's hand breaks through the silence and points to me. She's wearing it, too. It's for girls. And the tide turns. That's right, they say. Matthew opens his mouth to protest, but they surround him. Girl color, girl color, they chant. Later that evening, while our moms discuss the Sunday school lesson plans, Matthew and I trade shirts. 
Mine is a little tight on him, but his fits me perfectly. The color dissolves, and soon the fabric is just skin, my skin, a boy's skin. Seven years. Stephen Jenkins, a wiry, pigeon-faced man, is my favorite teacher because he keeps his hair in a ponytail, even though men aren't supposed to have long hair. He teaches art class and reads us Shel Silverstein poems while we push rationed lumps of clay into shapes. I try to turn my gray blob into a poem, nudging its body into line breaks and metaphors, but it always comes out looking like something in between, a knot circle or knot square. One day I make a hollow person. It is two inches tall, its clay skin stretched thin over where bones would be. The clay allotted to me is barely enough to make a body. Still, it looks regal and proud, like a figure out of a dream. When Mr. Jenkins puts it in the kiln that night, it explodes, catapulting its limbs into my classmates' works, rupturing vases and cups and figurines. He said it was a mistake, that it was just missing a space for steam to escape. But I knew. I knew. I knew. I knew. Thirteen years. I check out a book from the school library so often that the librarian notices. The book is about a boy named Jay who is born Jenny. His mom doesn't like it at first, but then she decides that she loves him anyway. I stay up late most nights and reread the book under my covers with a flashlight, wondering if anyone will love me anyways. Fifteen years. When the hairdresser cuts my hair short, she asks me if I'm going to cry. I don't, but the wet strands of hair she snips from my bangs fall down my face like tears. I watch the pillowy mass of hair accumulate on the floor beneath me, like water droplets condensing into a storm cloud. Later that night, I stare at myself in the mirror and think, boy, I am a boy. Seventeen years. I buy men's underwear for the first time. They are baggy, but not in a way that is uncomfortable. When the cashier rings them up, she gives me a look. It says, Your place in the world is best defined by how this underwear doesn't fit you, but the women's doesn't either. It says, Your body is not a body, it is a question mark. It says, You can't fit a belt around an idea. It says all of these things and more, only it comes out, Your total is eight ninety-five. will that be cash or credit? And I say, Whatever it costs me to inhabit this body... Only it comes out, cash, and she hands me my change. Nineteen years. The only story they believe is one where I've always wanted to wear men's underwear. They wonder who takes them off and what that makes them and what bathroom I take them off in. They ask, did you always know? And I think back to the color red and clay figures and library books and say, I have never known what it means to be a body. They do not know what to say to this, so they tell me I was born in the wrong body, as if there is a right body somewhere out there. They tell me this, and I wonder if their souls ever feel homeless, too. I woke up in where the hell and looked around the room. Someone's closing whatever those are wondering what to do who is going to bring me coffee or wring my neck for good i really didn't know for sure what was coming through 
door Close my eyes and hear rewind But the evening was erased Liquidated, evaporated In a foggy haze I better think fast Grab my jeans and crawl out of that Leaf Rapids with 20 Stories High. Time for a little mise, and I have a tasty snack size interview for you with Leaf Rapids, our featured music for this episode. And the project Leaf Rapids is Carrie Latimer's opportunity to croon about vultures circling their prey, barbershop stabbings, and love letters from smallpox quarantines in her disconcertingly sweet voice. Their sound has been described as cinematic folk and includes the eerie sound of the theremin. Their latest album, Citizen Alien, from May 2019, received nominations for a Canadian Folk Music Award and a Western Canadian Music Award. It was number four on the yearly campus radio Folk Roots Canadian National Earshot Roots Blues Charts in 2019. They have toured internationally and have performed at several Canadian folk festivals. Carrie's film score contributions include Academy Award-nominated Frozen River and Guy Madden's Only Dream Things. Carrie and Devin Latimer are former members of Nathan, who were signed to Network Records. Uh, I want to say a huge thank you to Carrie Latimer and Leaf Rapids for sharing their music with us on the Violet Hour and for answering uh, some questions. So here they are. One, what is your earliest memory of a place? 
If a place can be a kitchen, then my first memory is falling backwards in a high chair to the ground. If I dig deeper, there was yellow floral wallpaper, but I might be making that up. Two, how did you discover and learn to play the theremin, and what do you love about it? Does your theremin have a name? Does your guitar? Does one instrument get jealous of the other? My guitar and theremin seem to get along very well on the surface, but my guitar is a bit delicate and insecure sometimes, as it doesn't get as much attention as the theremin. It forgets that I rely on it to sing and that it doesn't need to shred to be important. They refuse to be named. Three, what is your songwriting process and creative practice like? Normally my songwriting is a continuously dripping faucet that I can't turn off, even if I want to. I try to catch the droplets before they disappear and then work at them laboriously until they are either a song or ruined. Sometimes it gushes and the house falls into shambles because I have trouble self-regulating. These days, though, I am peering into the faucet impatiently for something to come, because I hear the burbling, but nothing. It's okay. The laundry is getting done and I'm focusing on other creative things, like singing backup on other musicians' albums from my studio and working on instrumental soundscapes with a virtual boucle easel synthesizer and theremin. Can you talk about the collaborative process of being in a band with your husband? Without Devon, it is hard to say whether or not I would still be doing this. We think of touring as subsidized travel. It has allowed us to take our kids around the world and being hosted by the most generous people you will ever meet. I have never had to leave my family to go on tour, which is a very hard thing to do, and not likely something I would do as a mother. So I will say it has been essential. Aside from the practicality of toting your family along, we are on the same musical wavelength, and I still catch him dreamily closing his eyes when we jam in the basement. Which usually comes first when you write a song? Music or words? And is it a different process for theremin versus guitar? It's never the same, but it still fascinates me. Sometimes they are linked, and a whole verse or two falls into my lap, but that is rare. Most often, it's a line or a phrase niggling, either musical or lyrical. I have a stash of audio snippets of melodic gibberish and a stack of lyrical scribbles all waiting. With theremin, it's more of an intuitive response to whatever sounds or music I'm playing along to, almost like meditation. Four, what are your five favorite words you associate with earth? Mammoth, lava, muck, Tamarack, mycelium. With water? Burble, cascade, viscosity, trickle, tidal. With sky? Murmuration, borealis, chinook, cumulonimbus, nebula. Five. If you were creating an encyclopedia of your obsessions, what would some of the entries look like? Navigating the Buchla easel synthesizer, the mycelium revolution, the life of Lev Sergeyevich Termen, the novels of Haruki Murakami, how to sew everything. Bonus. If you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? A seahorse. Thank you so much, Carrie, for those wonderful answers. Uh, I have I have similar entries in my encyclopedia of obsessions, and uh, I'm also uh, very fond of seahorses. I still have a little uh, 
an actual seahorse skeleton somebody gave me back in grade school. Um, anyway, uh, we have more music coming up from Leaf Rapids, and if you are enjoying it, you can buy their album, Citizen Alien. It's available on their band camp, and it is wonderful, and you will get, uh, when you purchase it, uh, in addition to all the music, you'll get a PDF of the liner notes, which have uh, all the lyrics, but also have notes about the songs and photographs, old family photographs, and uh, it's really wonderful. So I recommend you pick it up, and it's at leafrapidsmusic.bandcamp.com slash album slash citizen hyphen alien and you can find out more about leaf rapids on their website leafrapids.org
That was Leaf Rapids with There They Go. Uh, now let's hop on the old theremin and head to... Mr. Bear, it's so nice to see you again. Hi, Miss Mousie. Uh, glad to be back. It uh, feels like I was just here. Yeah, I know. You know, new moon, full moon, new moon, full moon. Just uh, keeps coming around. But it's uh, a full pink super moon tonight, so I'm really excited. I love pink. I love the moon. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty special. And uh, I, I've really been enjoying the show. Um, well, except for that piece about the mouse that kind of made me pretty sad. Yeah, I know. It's a difficult subject matter. Uh, but um, I know it happens, you know. You got to be careful of those traps. Um, but uh, I just, yeah, that that piece kind of got to me. Um, but uh, what I'm mostly so over the moon excited about is Leaf Rapids and the Theremin. I know, right? Uh, I mean, if they were here, I'd even let Carrie drive the Theremin up to see you. And, you know, I don't usually let anyone drive Mini Mini except me. I know, it's, um, you know, it's a very personal thing, a Theremin. I was really surprised that Carrie's Theremin um, doesn't have a name. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Maybe um, uh, maybe we're the weird ones who name our instruments, Miss Mousie. I don't know. I don't think it's weird, Mr. Bear. I mean, everything has a name. And I don't really even think that we name them. I think, I think they tell us their names. Yeah, I, I agree. Um... And she just said that they won't be named, so I think it's more like, you know, her theremin and guitar don't don't want to share their names. Yeah, I'm I'm sure they have names. Anyway, Miss Mousy, how's your spring fever and your acting bug? Oh, thanks for remembering, Mr. Bear. Um, well, I still have a big case of both. Um, well, the acting bug is kind of dormant because I don't have any projects going on right now, but I do hope there'll be some more movies. Um, at Spring Fever, oh, I'm just in the throes of Spring Fever. I mean, the yard is just bursting with violets and dandelion and ground ivy, and I've got, um, purple dead nettle and nettle, motherwort, mugwort, uh, the chives are up, um, oregano, mint, daffodils, tulips. Oh my gosh, the tulips are so beautiful. Um, I just, I don't know what to do with myself with um, all this spring fever. Yeah, I, I, um, I feel the same way, Miss Mousy. Um, and I've seen some butterflies in the yard too. And robins and cardinals and sparrows and starlings and... Huh, don't get me going on the birds. Yeah, I I like to watch the birds from the window. They're so busy all the time. I know it, and they're just so much fun to watch. Anyway, uh, while I'm here, Miss Mousie, uh, is there anything you want to share? Oh, sure, Mr. Bear. Um, These days, I'm just all about dandelions. Dandelions. I love dandelions. 
I know, they're the greatest. They're just these little happy suns, just these little smiling golden balls of beauty. And did you know that all parts of the dandelion are edible, Mr. Bear? You can eat the flowers, the leaves, the roots. I know, and I, and I do, because they're all delicious. I know, I just, I really can't believe that people don't like dandelions, and that they try to get rid of them, and that they put nasty chemicals on their lawn. Oh no, I, I really, oh, just don't get me started on people on their lawns, and their pesticides, and their grass. Oh, I know, when they could just be having so much beauty and medicine and food instead. Um, anyway, dandelions, 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 dandelions. Just enjoy them. I mean, I like to just, I like to sit and look at them and draw them and talk to them. That's, you know, you don't have to pick everything for starters. Um, but um, I like to pick some leaves for my salad or to put in pesto, like last time we talked about nettle pesto. Um, and you can put dandelion leaves in there too, or you can put dandelion leaves in your spaghetti sauce or your smoothies. But right now, with all the flowers in bloom everywhere, and just looking out at all that pretty yellow, um, I like to think about picking the flowers, and you can tincture them. You could throw them in a jar, pour some vodka over them, shake them every day, and, and then in a month, strain them out, and you have a lovely tincture, um, just tincture for, I call it sunshine tincture, because uh, it just gives you that feeling of, of happy sunshine. Um, but you can also put them in honey. I like to pick the flower heads and put them in a jar and pour honey over them and let them infuse in the honey for a month or so and then strain them out and you can eat them. Um, or I put them in pancakes sometimes, the honey dandelion flowers, and then, you know, you have the honey that was infused with them. Um, you know, you just keep that in your cupboard and, you know, put it, put it in whatever you usually put honey in. Only now it's dandelion honey, so it's even better. Um, what else do I like to do? Um, oh, I like to make a, a dye with them. You can just uh, boil them up and simmer them, and then you get this beautiful yellow color, and you can, can dye, you know, wool with it, or silk, or, um, um, I've definitely made some beautiful dandelion yellow yarn. Um, you can make paper. I made dandelion paper once. Um, just by blending up, cooking down, and then blending up the, the flowers. Um, wow, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do with dandelion. I know, and probably my favorite thing to do is to make bitters um, with the roots. Um, you just, well, you can dig up the roots and, and chop them up yourself, clean them off, chop them up. Um, or you can buy them dried and chopped for you already, which is a lot easier. It's a lot of work to dig up roots. But, you know, if, um, if you're up for a little exercise and you have a lot of dandelions in your yard, that's a lot of free medicine. Because um, you just take the roots and you, you put them in a jar and pour vodka over them and just shake them every day or so and leave them for a couple of weeks, strain it out, and then you have um, 
wonderful uh, digestive bitter, and you just take a little a little squirt before your meals, um, and it's uh, fantastic. Oh, that's um, that's terrific. Uh, I mean, eating the leaves, uh, the leaves are also bitter. So when you have them in your salad, you know that also gets you the bitter flavor, uh, which is very important. And you know, when we don't have enough of the bitter flavor in, uh, you know, the Western diet. Yeah, I know. Bring back the bitter. That's that's what I always say. Anyway, um, I. I feel like I've just given given you a lot of information. I don't want to overwhelm you listeners. And, uh, you know, I've got more dandelion blossoms to go pick. Um, so um, I just want to remind you, Mr. Bear and your listeners, that I'm a two-dimensional hand-drawn mouse who's studying herbalism. And, uh, you know, people need to do um, their own research and, uh, you know, not just take a mouse's word for it. And also, of course, you have to be careful about where you get your dandelions from because, you know, you don't want to be eating them from pesticide-covered lawns. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, hopefully hopefully people aren't uh, covering their lawns with chemicals and they can just go outside and, and pick some dandelions and eat them and, and make some of these wonderful things. Well, thanks so much, Miss Mousy. Oh, my pleasure, Mr. Bear. Uh, come back any time and um, go eat some dandelions. Oh, I will. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
Leaf Rapids with Barbershop Shears. It's time for Pigalia, and today's menu features a sampling from Chris Galvin. Chris Galvin is a Canadian writer, editor, and photographer with one foot in Canada and the other in Vietnam. She writes mostly about food, nature, and Vietnam. And she has kindly written a recipe for clam rice for the Violet Hour. But first, I'm going to share her essay on the subject. Remembering hen rice. You'll get stomach ache. Don't eat hen. Ha shook her head. Even some Vietnamese people can't eat it. I told her I'd just had a meal of the tiny clams a few days earlier. I'll be fine. I like hen. Really? Ha's eyes widened. Where? On Trung Din Street, near my hotel. With Tuan. In fact, I plan to eat breakfast there today, before you sent Sung to fetch me. Sung was Ha's waitress. I'd fled Hanoi's February drizzle and returned to Sunny Hue, but the rain had found me again. It sluiced down the hotel windows, rattling the panes, waking me up each morning. Sometimes Tuan would pick me up on his way to Ha's restaurant, and I'd spend the morning practicing Vietnamese with the tour guides and restaurant staff. But now the rain pounded so hard, I was sure Tuan would stay home. I'd intended to make a dash for the cluster of restaurants up the road from my hotel. They all served hen clams, kum hen with rice, chow hen with rice porridge, and bun hen with rice noodles. I'd opened my door to find Sung standing in a wet circle on the carpet, plastic poncho dripping, jeans soaked from the knees down. I slid into place behind her on her motorbike, hunkering under the rear flap of her poncho, my legs folded horizontally high above the footrest to keep them dry. The rain sprayed up off the road and soaked me all the same. When we arrived at the restaurant, Ha had poured hot coffee and explained in English, Tuan busy. He say invite you for breakfast. He say you not go out in the rain. She offered me beef noodle soup. Sung suggested we eat kum hen instead. Ha switched back to Vietnamese. You really didn't get sick after eating hen? 
I told her I'd also tried the tiny clams on rice crackers in Hoian. The waitress had watched, surprised I could eat such spicy food. Like Ha, she'd warned me about stomach aches, but I remained healthy. Trung Din Street is number one for hen rice in Hue, said Ha. Did Tuan take you to the big restaurant on the corner? That's where we ate. I tried all three dishes. Sung waved her hand as if shooing a fly. Trung Din Hen is too sweet. The best hen rice is on Kon Hen. She was referring to Hen Islet, which lies between the north and south shores of Hue's Perfume River, not far from Dongba Market. Generations of families have made their living collecting the freshwater cubiculate clams from their alluvial beds around the island, cleaning the pea-sized mollusks and cooking them up. Han Sung argued the merits of each location, pitting the three or four restaurants on Chung Din Street against all the Kum Han vendors on the islet. While they usually switched to standard Vietnamese or spoke slowly for me, they now peppered their rapid speech with Hue slang. I couldn't follow their argument. The rain was sputtering out, and the light reflecting off the high ochre wall across from the restaurant gave the street a golden hue. Sung stood up and grabbed my hand, ending the discussion. You know how to eat kum hen, huh? Come with me. Chavui. For fun. We were on her motorbike for all of three minutes. She pulled over in front of a row of women at a makeshift sidewalk market. Shoe sellers patrolled rows of footwear. Women squatted amid stacks of neatly folded men's shirts. Others sat on Lilliputian plastic stools, tending steaming food. Sung ducked under a huge green and white umbrella, advertising Hue's Huda beer. A woman in matching short brown tunic and loose trousers was ladling broth from a battered aluminum cauldron. The woman gestured at me with her chin. She can eat it? Yes, she knows how. The woman raised her eyebrows. Can she eat spicy food? I know how to eat hen and chilies, I assured her in Vietnamese. Her eyes creased with her broad smile. Chi kong sa dao bung ha? No, I replied, I'm not afraid of stomach ache. She scooped cold rice into a bowl and topped it with silvery clams, julienned banana flowers, bitter za ma leaves, coriander, basil and bean sprouts, and pork cracklings. She sprinkled some roasted peanuts and paper-thin chili slices on top and placed it on a stool in front of me, followed by a bowl of pale broth. She handed me a spoon and a saucer of fish sauce with garlic, chilies, and green onion slivers. Pour this on the rice. Mix it together. Through the fire and sweetness of the sauce, I could taste the musky clams, balanced with the bland, crunchy cracklings and chewy cold rice. Kumhen is as much about texture as flavor and color. Each bite had a different ratio of sweet and salty, crunchy and soft. The hot, mild broth offset the cool but searingly spicy clam rice. The woman told me her husband went out every morning before dawn to scrape clams. How, I wondered, could he bear immersing himself in the cold water to collect the clams, their shells the size of my thumb now, from the muddy riverbed, when it was barely ten degrees Celsius and raining. He's a good swimmer, she said. He's strong. He can stand the cold, but he always comes home with shriveled hands. Rain pattered on the umbrella. We huddled beneath it, and I tightened my jacket collar against the chill. I sipped the broth, 
appreciating its warmth spreading from my stomach. We ordered the bunhen next. Though my tongue was growing numb, I noticed another layer, shredded toasted rice crackers. Almost white, they blended in with the noodles, and I hadn't seen them right away. We kept eating and listened to the hen woman talk. She was proud of her family business, but hoped her daughter wouldn't have to cook and sell hen for a living. You'll get a stomach ache, the woman in the next stall warned me. But I hadn't so far, and I adored Hui's trio of hen dishes. Crisp, clean flavors that danced on my tongue, and subtle undercurrents, too. I added them to my list of addictive Hui specialties, like the beef noodle soup called Bunbo Hui and Banbo Laup, the translucent shrimp dumplings I couldn't get enough of. My time in Vietnam was almost up. I told Sung I would miss hen rice. You know, she said in English, the hen, it in the heart of Hui people. When we go away, we remember. We always wish we'd come back. Eat kom hen. Leaf Rapids with Helen's Waltz. And now I have a recipe for you for clam rice. This is a dish that is both simple and complex. Complex because the components must be prepared first, some with their own sets of steps. Simple because once these are prepared and assembled, the dish goes together quickly. When you buy hen rice from a street vendor in Hue, she builds your serving with a scoopful of this and a dusting of that, then passes it to you to add a couple of final touches, and within a few minutes, you are requesting a second bowlful. Hen rice sellers will tell you some of the ingredients. The tiny clams, for example, are essential. But they'll also tell you that today it rained and the banana flowers weren't available, so there's more bak ha instead, or they like to use pennywort, or they never include pennywort. I've rarely come across fish mint in my hen rice, but one seller told me it was traditional. The recipe is adapted according to what's on hand and what each cook prefers, so feel free to adapt. The chili level is up to you, too. 
In Hue, people love their chili heat. Not everyone, of course, but in this dish they expect it, and several different vectors are popular for delivering the heat, from fresh chilies to chili powder to a chili paste condiment. You can use all or none of these. Hen rice can be breakfast, lunch, dinner, or a delightful snack. It goes really well with a beer, too. This recipe makes four small bowls of hen rice with accompanying bowls of light clear broth. Enough for two people for a meal or four people who need a light snack. A little note about the hen clams. Also known as baby clams or basket clams, these can be difficult to find outside of central Vietnam, but you can use fresh or frozen little necks, manila clams, or cockles. All quite small, though much bigger than hen clams. Frozen manila clams, size 21 over 30, work well, and this is what today's recipe features. Ingredients. Two to three cups room temperature cooked jasmine rice. A two pound bag of frozen pre-cooked shell-on manila clams thawed in their bag with their liquid. Don't toss out the liquid. For preparing the clams, you'll need a one inch piece of medium sized ginger sliced into thin coins and one fat stalk or two smaller stalks of lemongrass bruised with the handle of a heavy knife, a large pestle, or a hammer. For the broth, three cups of water from preparing the clams, one teaspoon sugar, a half teaspoon salt, and two teaspoons hue shrimp paste, called rook in Vietnamese. This is an unctuous and funky purplish fermented shrimp paste. For the shrimp paste marinade and sauce, two teaspoons shrimp paste, one and a half teaspoons fish sauce, two teaspoons sugar, one teaspoon dry ground chilies, a half to one teaspoon ground black pepper, and an optional one teaspoon MSG. As an alternative, if you don't have or don't want to use shrimp paste, increase the fish sauce to one tablespoon. For the saute, you will also need one fat or two smaller cloves of garlic, roughly chopped, about two teaspoons. For the salad to line the bowls, you'll need one large or two small bacca stems, two cups of bean sprouts, and one cup of finely sliced banana flour soaked in water acidulated with lime juice. The banana flour can be omitted if you can't find any. The bacca may be replaced with crunchy lettuce cut into strips. Fresh garnish, one large green star fruit, one cup of roughly chopped fresh coriander, one cup of Thai basil leaves, and one cup of rau ram leaves. This last herb is frequently sold as Vietnamese coriander. Optional other herbs you could add if you like are pennywort, fish mint, shisho, and mint. For the flavoring sauce, which is a basic nuk cham, one or two Thai chilies, sliced thin, one small garlic clove, minced, one tablespoon sugar, two tablespoons fish sauce, two teaspoons freshly squeezed lime juice, one and a half tablespoons water. If you choose to use the optional Hue-style chili paste condiment, a recipe can be found on Chris's blog. You'll need about one or two tablespoons. For the crunchy toppings, one cup pork rinds, larger pieces broken into two to four smaller ones, two tablespoons sesame seeds, dry toasted together with an eighth teaspoon salt until seeds are pale golden and fragrant, four to five tablespoons oil, 
8 tablespoons raw peanuts, 1 large purple shallot, halved lengthwise, each half cut into 6 to 8 thin strips, and the layers separated and spread out on a plate to air dry. Prepare all the components. Pour all the liquid from the bag of clams into a pot and add enough water to make about three cups. Add the lemongrass and ginger slices. Bring to a low boil, reduce to a simmer, then cover and cook for about 10 minutes to let the flavors develop. Bring it back to a boil, add the clams, cover the pot, and leave just until the clams are good and hot, removing them when the broth returns to a strong simmer. Note that if you use raw clams instead, you'll need to cook them for two to three minutes or until all their shells open. With a perforated ladle or spider strainer, lift out the clams and place in a large bowl until cool enough to handle, then remove them from their shells. For the marinade, combine all the ingredients, using the back of a spoon to smush everything together well. Combine half of this shrimp paste mixture with the clams and set aside the other half for flavoring the servings. Set aside the clams to marinate while you prepare the broth and toppings. For the broth, filter the cooking liquid from the clams or pour it slowly into another pot, leaving behind the last quarter cup with any grit or shell bits. Add the ginger and lemongrass back to the broth, along with two teaspoons shrimp paste and two teaspoons sugar. Simmer covered for 10 to 15 minutes. Taste and add more seasonings if desired, keeping in mind that the flavor should be mild. Keep warm on very low heat while you finish the recipe. Wash all of the herbs and other fresh produce. For the salad, peel the thin, fibrous skin from the back ha with a paring knife as you would remove the strings from a celery stalk, then julienne the stem. Leave the bean sprouts raw or blanch in boiling water for 10 seconds and drain if you prefer. Combine the bak ha and bean sprouts for the base salad. If you are lucky enough to have acquired a banana blossom, drain off the acidulated water you soaked the shreds in and add the shreds to the bak ha and bean sprouts. Set aside in your designated area where you will assemble your servings. For the fresh garnish, slice the star fruit into thin stars and set aside in your assembly area. Coarsely chop the coriander. Tear any very large basil leaves and keep smaller ones whole. Coarsely chop the raw ram leaves. Prepare any of the optional herbs you are using and combine all the herbs in a bowl, fluffing them together lightly with your fingers. Set beside the salad. For the nukchum, combine all the ingredients, stirring well to dissolve the sugar. Taste and adjust as desired. Note that this is not the sweet, weak, and watery version you sometimes get with meals at restaurants. You are looking for popping flavor with a pleasant balance of sweetness, the sour lime juice and chili heat, and the warm, salty funk of the fish sauce. Place the chili paste, if using, in another small bowl. Put this and the nook chum aside with the salad and garnishes. Prepare the country toppings. Dry roast the peanuts in a small skillet. When they are golden and fragrant, add a tablespoon of oil. Combine well and remove from the heat. In Hawaii, most cooks use plenty of oil, sometimes even deep-frying the peanuts. So do add at least enough oil to make the peanuts glisten. You can leave them in the pan or place them in a small bowl together with their oil to have ready for assembling the servings. Place the pork cracklings and toasted sesame seeds in separate bowls. In a small pan, 
Fry the shallot strips slowly in three tablespoons of oil on fairly low heat until crisp and deep golden brown. This will take up to 10 or 12 minutes. Stir and flip the pieces frequently and pay attention as they can change color and burn quite quickly. If they do start to burn before they are ready, add a little more oil to cool them slightly and keep stirring. Remove them from the pan with a slotted spoon, letting any excess oil drip off. Spread them out on a paper towel and let them sit briefly before adding them in another small bowl to your mise en place. Saute the clams. Heat two tablespoons oil, add the garlic and saute until fragrant, about 15 seconds. With the stove on medium, add clams with their marinade and saute only until fragrant and hot, about 20 to 30 seconds. Now you're ready to assemble and serve the clam rice. Line each of four small bowls with a handful of the mixed salad and top with a scoop of room temperature rice. Place one quarter of the clams atop the rice in each bowl and spoon a small dollop of shrimp paste sauce onto the clams. Sprinkle a spoonful of nook jam over each serving. Top with a pinch or two of sesame seeds, a spoonful of peanuts with a little of their oil, some caramelized shallots. Decorate each with a few pork rinds and slices of star fruit and a small handful of the assorted herbs. Remove the ginger and lemongrass from the broth and ladle the broth into small bowls to serve on the side. Set out the chili paste, any remaining nook cham, shrimp paste sauce, herbs, and crunchy toppings on the table for diners to add to their hen rice as needed. Diners should use their spoons to mix together the rice and toppings so every bite presents a combination of flavors and textures. Spicy bitefuls of rice can be alternated with sips of mild broth, or broth can be spooned onto the rice to barely dampen it, or even added with abandon to make for a soupier clam rice. Well, thank you so much to Chris Galvin for sharing that recipe with us. It sounds delicious. Uh, also sounds like a lot of work. Uh, so, you know, maybe um, if there's any adventurous uh, chefs out there, you can try it and uh, let me know how it is. Uh, I have to admit, I'm kind of a lazy bear, and um, I will probably, uh, uh, I'll probably have to go to Vietnam to get this uh, before cooking it myself. Oh, that's you know, I'm just being honest here, but it sounds delicious. And um, if you didn't remember all that, to just go whip it up in your kitchen right now, and you don't want to keep rewinding this, um, you can find the recipe at Chris's blog, which is chrisgalvinwriter.wordpress.com, and that's c-h-r-i-s-g-a-l-v-i-n-w-r-i-t-e-r.wordpress.com. And after dinner, how about a little coffee? I have one more piece by Chris Galvin here on Vietnamese coffee. A Chorus of Spoons Whenever I leave Vietnam for Canada, I pack as much of my favorite coffee from Hue as I can carry, usually several kilos. It's never enough. Upon returning, going out with friends for a glass of café suda, iced coffee with milk, is one of the first things I do. The coffee trickles down hypnotically, a spreading chocolatey blot on the pool of ivory condensed milk at the bottom of the glass. The flavor is chocolatey, too. 
a characteristic that comes partly from the blends of coffee used in Vietnam and partly from the long, low-temperature roasting process, which sometimes involves adding oil infused with cocoa or other flavorings. Some cafes prepare the coffee in advance, but I like it best when they serve it with the metal fin, from the French filtre, perched atop the glass, filled with coffee and just boiled water. Some Vietnamese like their coffee with condensed milk. Others, like my husband, prefer sugar for café den, black coffee. Vietnamese sugar is fairly coarse, so either way, a cursory swirl of the spoon isn't enough. You have to give it a proper stir. In every cafe, the chorus of ringing spoons punctuates the hum of conversation. Vietnam has long been second largest coffee exporter in the world, even pushing Brazil out of first place for a while. Most of the coffee is robusta, grown in Dak Lak, a central highlands province. Sadly, robusta is associated with low-quality coffees, but pampered plants produce beans that, when deeply roasted, as they are in Vietnam, produce a bitter but rich, full-bodied brew. Without a sweetener, some find the bitterness overwhelming. Add sugar or condensed milk, and alchemy occurs. The result is a balanced elixir with a mouthfeel so full it seems to sit roundly on the tongue. The flavor reminiscent of mocha ice cream if condensed milk is used, or coffee liqueur if served with sugar. Adding ice further tames any cloying or bitter overtones. Coffee culture is huge in Vietnam. Cafes spring up everywhere on riverbanks, in art galleries, dusty bookshops, and old war bunkers, in restored pavilions where kings once relaxed. Upscale cafes serving espresso-based drinks and coffee with fancy latte art abound, but the filter drip method is still the most common. Saigon-style coffee comes to the table in two parts, a tall, ice-filled glass and a second glass with the filter. Once the water drips through, you stir the coffee and pour it over the ice. In Hue, in the central region, the glasses are much smaller, and the ice comes in a bowl on the side. Hue people tend to prefer their coffee and food less sweet than Southerners do. Not a fan of sweet things, I always ask for just a tiny amount of condensed milk. Once in Chowdao, in the Mekong Delta on the border with Cambodia, I received what looked like milk with a few drops of coffee added. The kindly seller noticed I wasn't drinking it and made me another one, but it was no better. I tried to drink it but gave up, and one of my companions insisted on trading his black coffee for my condensed milk on ice. Now, when I'm in the mood for Saigon coffee, I ask for a black one, usually served with the sugar on the side. Hanoians drink theirs in small glasses, too, and in both the central and northern regions, where winter brings persistent rains and single-digit temperatures, hot coffee is not just for tourists. The filter drip method takes time, and the coffee cools rapidly, so sellers serve the glasses of coffee in bowls of hot water. Café Trung, egg coffee, hot or iced, is popular among tourists in Hanoi, but I don't know any locals who like it. Despite frowning friends, I tried the hot version to see what the fuss was about. Rather like a light mocha zabuglioni floating atop black coffee, but not a beverage I'd want to drink every day. 
A Hanoi-based friend once told me the city has two types of coffee shops, luxury style and binyan, meaning common people. These are the ultra-cheap sidewalk cafes where people drink cafe bui, dust coffee. Sidewalk coffee is popular everywhere. In Hue, we sometimes drink our early morning brew with friends on a short side street with no obvious coffee shop, just crowds of people sitting on randomly placed plastic mini stools. When we arrive, a man pops out from a doorway to take our orders. Café Bet, sitting on the ground coffee, is perfect for hot weather. In Saigon, vendors carrying trays of iced coffee roam the parks. I love to sit in the cool, greenish light of sun filtered through trees and observe the crowd while I sip. Students sit right on the grass or on their flip-flops. Business people and stylish shoppers spread newspapers on the ground to protect their clothes. I've heard many travelers from Western countries say the typical serving of Vietnamese coffee is too small. Sometimes it's barely more than a few thimblefuls. Even the generous-looking Saigon coffee is mostly ice. But you can always have two. For me, one is enough, though I face the dilemma of sipping it slowly to make it last, or drinking another mouthful and another instant gratification until it is gone and I want more. In the West, we might sip in solitude, mug in one hand, newspaper or mobile device in the other, oblivious to our surroundings. My Vietnamese friends rarely drink coffee at home or alone. Friends invite us out before breakfast, after work, or after a night on the town. In some cafes, all the chairs face the street, the better to spot friends walking by or watch the crowd. Until you've enjoyed it in the community spirit, you really haven't had Vietnamese coffee. Hawaii people are used to bad weather. Some wax poetic about the melancholy mood, sitting in a coffee shop, listening to the white noise rain, accompanied perhaps by old recordings of Trung Kong Sun. The rain doesn't interrupt the sidewalk coffee business. At my favorite spot for morning coffee, under the Bodhi tree, Cousin Tui strings up a tarp and neighbors congregate under its shelter. The warmth of community counteracts the miserable cold. Tui has a special way with black coffee. When a customer calls for Café Den, she beats in the sugar rapidly, producing a generous brown froth reminiscent of a freshly drawn porter. In Hue's many open-air cafes, I sit contemplating river life or enjoying the cool breeze on a hot day. The garden cafes enchant me. Entering one is like discovering a secret place. Some have meandering walkways and streams full of fish and croaking frogs. Others have tables tucked behind fragrant flowering shrubs. Some feature a nyarung, a traditional Hue-style house built of wooden posts and pillars. Some of my best memories of living in Vietnam are of drinking coffee in Hue. The beverage is addictively delicious. But the atmosphere and the people I shared it with are what made those moments special. Some stand out like the idle morning at the Songsan Cafe overlooking the River Nhu. Spotting something in the water, we wondered if it was a river rat. Perhaps a bit of rubbish or a twig, we speculated as it drifted closer. It turned out to be a baby turtle hitching a ride on a floating leaf. We gazed, fascinated, until it disappeared around a bend. 
Um, that's the show. Thanks so much to Chris Galvin for sharing her essays and creating that recipe for us. And also, thank you for all the help with pronunciation. Uh, hopefully, I came pretty close to the Vietnamese. Uh, Chris was kind enough to write up a bunch of notes and spend some time trying to uh, help me get the pronunciation correct. Uh, so hopefully I, I did okay with that. Uh, remember, you can uh, check out more of Chris's work and uh, find that recipe at her website, chrisgalvinwriter.wordpress.com. And I want to say thank you to Rose Metal Press and Brevity and all the writers in that beautiful collection. Um, and that was just a small sampling of the gorgeousness that awaits you in The Best of Brevity, 20 Groundbreaking Years of Flash Nonfiction, edited by Zoe Bossier and Dinty W. Moore. And you can get your own copy. Uh, it's available at rosemetalpress.com. And uh, it's really wonderful. In addition to all of the beautiful works, uh, there's a whole section at the back with resources for writers, readers, and teachers of flash nonfiction. So uh, this is this is a great book. And um, also you can go to brevitymag.com to uh, read more of the work available at their wonderful journal. And last but not least, thank you to Leaf Rapids uh, for sharing their music and answering interview questions. Um, and you can uh, find out more about them and pick up their album, Citizen Alien, at their website, leafrapids.org. Thanks so much for joining me here in the Violet Hour. And uh, I'll be back with you on the new moon. Um, until then, go out and enjoy that uh, that supermoon and uh, eat some dandelions. Thanks, and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousy believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, you can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org. For more information, there's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.